We're going to read the word of the Lord out of Psalms chapter 4. Again, thank you for coming today. Thank you for joining us online. And thank you all for partnering with us. Those of you that support the ministry by showing up and supporting it financially with your tithes and offerings. We could not do what God's called us to do without you. So we want to thank you for all that you do to make the ministry possible. Our partners, you're going to hear more about our 2020 vision as we come into this new year. And some exciting things are on the horizon for Oasis Church and the surrounding San Joaquin Valley and to the world as we, as we launch out with some bold initiatives this coming new year. In Psalms chapter 4, we see a, a process to victory as we ignite hope. Last Sunday of Psalms 4, I started it off with really the foundation of, of Oasis Church. I gave you the, the blueprints of why Oasis Church exists about finding salvation, finding your freedom, finding your purpose so you can ignite hope. It's why we exist in this community and why we're existing, what God calls us to do around the world in our outreaches, etc. But today, this is how to get that lane, the rhythm of God to get on the right lane. In Psalm chapter 4, it says, Hear me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. He's under pressure. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Verse 4 says, Be angry, but don't sin. Meditate within your heart and on your bed and be still. Selah. Offer sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, Who will show up and do us any good? Lord, lift up your light on your countenance upon us. You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine have increased. I will both lie down in peace and I will sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is how to get on the road to victory, to get into the right lane. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for your word. It's a lamp and it's a light. And let every word that Joey Stillman says, let it fall to the ground. And let every word that's a prophetic utterance, let it penetrate our hearts and change us forever. Not because we've met with a man, but God, we met with you. In Jesus' name and all God's men and women said, amen. amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're really good looking and sit down. So, would you give the worship team one more round of applause? They did so good. Thank you, worship team. Thank all of our ushers, our greeters. We also, if you'd like to be an usher or a greeter, or if you've kind of dabbled in, sometimes you're an usher, sometimes you're a greeter, we have a special meeting right after the service, uh, right out there in the cafe. Cafe is open, by the way, too, for everybody after service, drinks and food, etc. We want you to have fun, fellowship. Don't just leave. you got nowhere to go. You live in Stockton. Stay here. Hang out. This is why we built the facility with this beautiful cafe, so it's not... It's not encumbersome, but you can all stay and hang out. But it's uh, a meeting right after service. We need ushers. We need greeters. It's a great way to get involved in Oasis Church so you can be a part of it. Now think about this, because on the road to victory, if we're really going to ignite hope, we cannot give what we do not have. Does anybody realize that you are not born to lose, but you really are born to choose? You have to choose this day. That's why your week goes better when you honor God by coming to his house the first of the week. The first of the week is so important. First fruits, giving God first priority. It's really an important topic when you make God a priority. He always gives back to you. David did that. David was a man after God's own heart. But David wasn't a man chosen by, by the status of society, not even by the status of his own family. David was a man that was tending his father's sheep in the shepherd's field. And when the time came for Israel to have a new king, 
Many of you know the story. David wasn't even chose to come to the party. How'd you like to have a family reunion party and not be invited to the reunion? You're a part of the family, but we don't want you in the house. That was David. David had seven brothers, and all seven brothers thought that they were the next candidate to be the king of Israel. Well, we know the story. Seven brothers came before the prophet, and the prophet said, this is not the king of Israel. Seven came and gone. Seven up, seven down. And after all seven were not meeting the qualifications to be the king of Israel, the prophet Samuel turned to the father, Jesse, and said, do you have another son? He was saying, in effect, either I've missed God or you don't know how many children you have. And Jesse said, well, come to think about it, I do have another son. He's the run of the family. He's, he's David. He's tending my sheep in the shepherd's field. They had to wait. And the Bible says they all had to stand until David came in the house. And when the prophet saw David, a little ruddy shepherd boy, he poured the anointing oil on him. But you have to realize that oil would not pour on the seven. It only poured on the one. And that anointing oil poured upon David from the crown of his head down to his feet. And David was appointed the king of Israel. But it would be some 13 years before he would take the throne. And you would have to think, after 13 years of running from Saul and, and, and having this great destiny on you and having this great purpose and this great word spoken over you, you would think after those, that many years that now that you are king, that you would have no more trouble. It's like many people, they think, well, after I've accomplished this, after I've graduated, after I've got my degree, after I've, I've paid my house note, I've never thought I would be in the time of life that I'm in. I can, I can assure you, David thought the same thing. David is no longer king of Israel. He's on the run. He's on the run from his son Absalom, who sweared that he will kill David and he will assume authority and take the throne. Not only is Absalom wanting his father dead, but David's chief friend, Ahithophel, who owed everything in life of prosperity to David, he's turned on David. And now he's sworn to kill the very man he claimed to be his BFF. Now he wants David's dead. They've gathered an army of 30,000 people. They're on the other side of the hill. The army is planning to attack David and his 50 men come dawn's light. And as the army began to rehearse the battle plans, how it was going to capture David and kill David, David is at the campfire. He's writing Psalms chapter 4. And he cries out to God for salvation. He said, oh, Lord, God of my salvation. And that's what you and I need to do when calamity comes, when trials come, when things don't go our way. The best thing we can do is cry out to God, the one who brings us salvation. Salvation doesn't come through other methods. Salvation doesn't come through thinking ourselves wealthy or thinking ourselves of good report. Salvation cannot come through crawling down the aisle of a cathedral, kissing the toe of a statue. Salvation cannot come in the name of Buddha. It cannot come in the name of Muhammad. It cannot come in the name of Joseph Smith. Salvation cannot come other than Jesus Christ, the one and only. That's how salvation comes. And that salvation came to David because David is a type and shadow of Christ. So you have to draw the picture because this is New Testament prophecy being fulfilled. So David, he's crying out to God for salvation. And he says something in verse 4. He says, have mercy on me, O Lord. Have mercy on me. And once again, the Hebrew language is so majestic. It's so beautiful. It, it expands itself. It has multiple meanings. But he literally is saying in the Hebrew, be gracious unto me, God, and hear my prayer. 
It literally means be gracious unto me. It's talking about grace. And that's what mercy is. Mercy is grace manifested. The Hebrew word for grace means to find favor with God. I love that because it's for no understandable reason. When you receive your Savior, your salvation, Jesus, God has put his favor on you for no understandable reason, for no justifiable reason. You don't qualify for it. You don't deserve it. You can't pray enough. You can't give enough. You cannot do enough. God's goodness has come upon you because of what Jesus has done for you. That's so wonderful because many people, they think they have to earn God's favor. They think they got to pray more for God's favor. They got to be better. They got to be obedient. They got to do all these things for God's favor. And I'm telling you, God's put his favor upon you and your family for no justifiable reason other than Jesus Christ, the one and only. He has put his favor on you. God put that favor. Let us have an awareness. Let everyone in this room and everybody watching, let them have an awareness of the favor of God that they have at their disposal because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That grace has been given to every man, every woman, every boy and every girl. That grace is God's unmerited favor. Think about it. David is surrounded. He's surrounded by hostility. He's surrounded by adversity. He's surrounded by stress. He's under great pressure. We talked about that last Sunday. He's surrounded by betrayal. His son is wanting him dead. His chief friend wants him dead. He's surrounded by death. And he writes, God, show me your favor. Show me your favor for no understandable reason, for no justifiable reason. God, just open up those windows of heaven and bless me with blessings I cannot contain. How many of you understand what David is doing? You would think in the natural, he's somehow made a mistake. He's supposed to be on the, on the palace yard, on the throne of that power. He's running for his life, but he has the audacity. He has the, the, the absolute audacity to say to God, God, just pour out your favor on me. I know I'm not where I need to be. I know I'm not on my throne right now. But God, for no understandable reason, no justifiable reason, you just pour that favor upon me right now. And because I'm your son and I receive it right now. See, that's what you and I need to do. He's given us insight into an amazing concept that you don't qualify for favor. You didn't do anything to earn God's favor other than receiving Jesus. So once you receive Jesus, then when your most difficult times, you need to do what David does. You need to just lift up your head and say, God, pour out your favor upon me, upon my family. Let your reign of your presence fall on me, fall upon my children. Let your anointing break every demonic yoke. Let your power overcome me me and my family. Let the gifts of the Holy Spirit be magnified in me and magnified through me. God, pour it out. How many of you would like that favor to come upon you like a Mack truck? Let me see your hands. Hallelujah. Now with your hands, just keep them raised right now. You're watching by the internet. Keep your hands raised wherever you're watching and say this with me. Father God, let the grace and mercy of an almighty God be poured out upon me and my house. Show me your favor for no understandable reason other than your goodness upon your children. I receive your favor upon myself, upon my house, upon my children, upon my children's children, now and forever in Jesus' name. Now celebrate the victory of God's favor. I like that. Woo. Isn't that good? 
That's what's really happening at the conclusion of services like this. If you've been to these services, you know we end the service with a prophetic blessing. It's a priestly blessing. What that means, it's a blessing that God gave to Moses to tell Israel that the Lord may bless you and may keep you and that the Lord may shine his face upon you and be gracious unto you. That's the utterance of the blessing. That's given by God through delegated authority. That means a dad here, a mom here, a single mom here. You have the delegated authority by God to lay your hands upon your children and to speak the blessing over your children. I've been delegated by the authority of God. Every time these services conclude, myself or Jennifer, to pray the prophetic blessing over you. And here's what I'm praying. Lord, bless them. Lord, keep them. Shine your face upon them and be gracious unto them for no understandable reason, no justifiable reason other than your mercy. Give them rivers of living water. Pour out rivers of blessing upon them. Give them houses they didn't build, vineyards they didn't plant, wells they did not dig. Put your favor around their children. Let them be free from sickness, disease, and accident. Let your majesty, let your majesty and your majestic power fall on them in Jesus' name. You say, well, that sounds, I never thought when you were praying like that, you're doing that. Yeah, I am doing that. What I'm doing is I'm, I'm telling, I'm telling what, what God wants to do through you and over you. I do it with my children. I do it with my family. I do it with you. And that's something that you need to understand. So you have to just sometimes just cry out to God. You just cry out to God. That's what the church is here for. We cry out to God. You should always be able to bring somebody to the Oasis Ministries and they know that they can find salvation in Jesus and find their freedom in Jesus. That means we believe in healing. We believe in the gifts of the Spirit. We believe with signs, wonders, and miracles. God will show up and show out with this awesome power. We believe that you can find purpose once you find salvation and you find freedom. Then you find your purpose so you can ignite hope. Think about how an amazing thought that is. So once you realize that, then they're what I call crying out to God. But to get on the road to victory, you got to make a correction. Have you ever driven in the wrong way, men? You ever made wrong turns? And then you don't ask for directions? And if you ever had your GPS or your little phone just give you wrong directions, and then I start yelling at Siri, and she starts yelling back at me. She's like, don't talk to me in that tone of voice. I have a weird English one. And I'm like, what are you doing? Anyway, I don't want to go there. But we've all made wrong turns. We've all made coarse errors in our directions. And we have to sometimes make corrections and change course. That's what I love about the Holy Spirit that lives on the inside of us. That the Holy Spirit that gives us power when we make a wrong decision, when we make a wrong choice. The goodness of God is because of his mercy. He helps us change the course of correction and get on the right path. You're not going to miss the will of God. You're not going to exhaust the love of God. God's mercies are new every single morning. So guess what? It's sometimes the Holy Spirit will nudge you and he'll say, change course change course. That's what David did. He does. He makes a correction. How do we know it? Verse four, he says, be angry, but don't sin. How many know he's angry? He's away from his palace. He's away from his throne. He's away from the the luxuries of being the king. He's angry that his son has betrayed him. He's wondering like a dad would wonder, I'm sure, where did I go wrong? Why was I messing with Bathsheba? Why was I messing around with that nonsense? Why was I, was, why was I looking up there when I shouldn't have been looking? Why? I, I, oh, and, I, and I, why? And now he's, he's beating himself up, but then he makes correction. He says, no, I'm, I'm going to be angry, but I'm not going to sin out of it. 
Now, I want you to do something this morning. I want you to look deeply into your soul and ask, your question, ask yourself a question. Have you ever really been angry? I mean, red foot, I mean, red, red face, stomping your foot, eye popping, bulge out eyes. I mean, mad as a hatter. I mean, stomping, angry, yelling. You ever done that? The rest of you are lying. Those of you that have been angry, that have raised your hands, can I see those who have gotten angry and done stuff? You're normal. The people that didn't raise their hand, they're crazy. But the people that get angry, I think they're normal. So the question is, when you get angry, what do you do with it? When you're angry at it, what do you do with it? Because anger is a powerful, it's a powerful emotion. As a matter of fact, it's been divinely planted. So it can be, so it can be used by God and be used to make a lasting forever change. But understand, it could be used for things constructive and things that are destructive. That's why we often use the phrase getting mad. I'm getting mad to describe our anger. It's kind of fitting, isn't it? Because when your general rule, whenever you lose your temper, you're losing your sanity. You're angry. Question, when you really get angry, do you sin? Is all anger sin? Is anger ever helpful? David writes, be angry, but don't sin. Now, if that was only given one time in scripture, you probably wouldn't have to go over it again. But it shows up with two or three witnesses, just like the scriptures tell us to divide that word with two or three. That's how you divide truth with two or three witnesses. That's why Jesus said, gather two or three in agreement. I'll move heaven and earth. It's the same with the scriptures. If you gave it one time in Psalms, you'd go, okay, he's, he's kind of emotional and he's saying stuff. But the apostle says in Ephesians 4.26, he says the same exact thing. Be angry and do not sin. So the point is, there's a time when anger is good if the cause is godly. If it's godly. So what is the motivation of the anger? That's really the question that needs to be answered. Look at Jesus. He's walking into the temple with a twisted rope in his hand. He's absolutely raged from what he's seeing. Did he sin? Did he slip out of character when he lost his temper? When Jesus entered that temple with the twisted whip in his hand and he shouted at the top of his lungs, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Was he in sin? Of course not. The outer court was a smelly, noisy marketplace. Many people don't realize that the outer court was, was there for the pilgrimages for three times that the Jews and the people of the Jewish faith would have to travel to Jerusalem. And three times a year they would have to make millions of people would have to travel and go to the temple. There was the outer court, there was the inner court, then there was the Holy of Holies. And what many people don't understand is that they use the term, don't do stuff in church and sell product and do that stuff. That's not what this scripture is referring to. They would, they would have that outer court because when you traveled days, months, perhaps multiple months, you couldn't bring certain things with you, animals, certain things for sacrifice. So you'd have to buy them in the temple to sacrifice them to God. And what was happening in that outer court is that they were mismanaging the money. They were, they were given, they were, they were raising up prices. They were, they were doing things that were not honorable to God. They were extorting people with these high prices for these sacrifices that was required by the law of Moses to offer. 
Can you see that happening there? The deafening din of the, of the hawker selling the goods, the bleeding of the sheep, the, the, the chirping and cackling of the birds, the, the bargaining of the money changers, the bellowing of the ox, drowning out the voice of the religious racketeers that had no problem there making money, but they certainly weren't there to worship God, to worship Jehovah. And into the chaos comes Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the love of God incarnate on earth. He's not there to worship. He's not there to go to the inner court because he is the inner court. He's not there to stand between the cherubims because he is the very presence of God manifested in the flesh. He didn't come to worship. He came to set war and he told them, my house is a house of prayer, but don't you turn it into something it was never intended to be. He was angry. And that is when the cause is godly. Sometimes love, anger is love's clearest voice. It's when the cause is godly. Anger could be love's clearest voice. And there are times when we have to stand up and we have to speak up for righteous causes. We have to do that. But then there's the other side of the coin. There's heads and you got tails. And the tail side is anger, if it's not controlled, is sin. Now listen closely because Jesus said, who's ever angry with his brother without a cause is in dangers of what? Hell's fire. The Bible says, let not the sun go down on your anger. And certainly don't go to bed angry. Why? Because if you live with a woman and you're a man and you live with a woman and you get in a fight with her, you may not wake up if she's from Stockton. She might take you out, Jack. So you don't go to bed angry, but not because of that. That could be, though. But you don't go to bed angry because now the finest physicians in America, the results are in after decades of research that people that live with anger and bitterness, it releases toxins and chemicals in their body that produces all types of diseases, all types of different cancers. So it's not what you're eating, it's what's eating you that makes a world of difference. It makes a world of difference. So when your anger is without a cause, you're in danger of hell's fire. Why? Because you're murdering yourself. You're murdering the, the God-given potential that he's put inside your heart. You're murdering the people around you because of your uncontrolled attitude. Angry people die prematurely. They let themselves die. Uncontrolled rage. It's sin. It kills you. It kills everybody around you. That's why Jesus said, be, be careful of that. The Bible says he who is slow to anger, listen to this, is better than the mighty. And he who rules his own spirit is mightier than one who takes a city. What God's saying is, if you can chill out, if you can control that anger, and you can explain it and not express it, then you can rule a city. Jesus said, you'll rule and reign with me in heavenly places. Could this be one of the attributes and one of the qualifications for us to rule and reign with Christ in heavenly places? I believe so. I believe what we do here is a test what we do there. That means if people will not come to God's house on Sunday and worship him with their hands raised, with the singing, the praise, and, and the glory to God, what makes you think God wants you in heaven where that's all they do 24 hours a day, seven days a week? You might as well get used to it here because if you're a believer, you're going to do it there. And they may not have your style of music up there. They might be singing country. You just don't know. If it's not Gaither, it's not God. That's all I'm saying. 
I love the Gaither. So if it's not Gaither music, it's not God. It's got to be Gaither music in heaven 24-7. Day stars shine upon me. Now, here's the thing. I think there's something so important about making a correction. When God just pricks your heart and you say, you know what? I've got to correct this attitude. I've got to correct this issue. I've got to make God a priority. I've got to make church a priority. I've got to help, I've got to help Oasis. I've got to help Joey and Jennifer fulfill the destiny that God's put upon the ministry. So you start making corrections, and the Spirit of God starts helping you in that corrections. And here's the final one as Pat's already up here, and he's ready to rock. Here's the final one. you got to have confidence. you got to have confidence. Think about David, the confidence that this man has. There's an army of 30,000 people that want him dead. It's led by his own son. His chief friend, his best friend, Ahithophel, has turned against him. Many of you have had that happen to you. And now they're wanting David's head on a platter. The next morning, the battle is on. And the Bible says in verse 7 and 8, I will lie down and I will have rest. I'm going to sleep. There are people in this room and watching by the way of the internet, they can't sleep with a bottle of Jack and some pills. Oh, don't look at me so holy. Some of you drank before you got here. A bunch of winos. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Man, you, you got to know I'm just playing. I'm just playing. I'm just playing. Winos. Anyway, verse 7 and 8 says, I will lie down and I will be at peace. How many of you know to do that? It's, it's significant. You got to have confidence. You got to have confidence, number one, in God. You and I, when we're in the midst of our difficulties, we really got to draw back on God and have confidence in him. Thousands of people are screaming for his death. They want his blood. He says, God, you take care of this. I'm going to bed. Good night. That's confidence. So what is confidence? Webster's ref defines it as a relationship of trust that produces coolness under stress. There's that word pressure again, stress. When you get under pressure, when you get under stress, you can draw and lean on the everlasting arm of confidence in the one true God. Do you lose your cool under stress? Most people do. Let me give you some areas how to be confident. Number one, have confidence in God. Proverbs 3.26 says, For the Lord will be your confidence, and he shall keep your foot from stumbling. Proverbs 14.26 says, For the fear of the Lord, there is a strong confidence. His children shall have a place of refuge. I love that. 1 John 5.14, this is the confidence that we have. That if I ask anything according to his will, he hears me. He hears me. Have confidence in God. Don't worry about your future. God's already prepared your future. He's got plans for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a bright future. Don't worry about your past. It's been washed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Don't worry about your present. He's got angels on the left of you and on the right of you. Their swords are drawn to defend you. Why worry when you have a God that never fails? Why worry when you have a God that moves heaven and earth? Why worry when you have a God God that will defend you and fight for you and come to your rescue. You have a God who will never give up on you. <laughs> so you got to have confidence in God, but then you got to have confidence in fellow believers. It's hard to have confidence in people, isn't it, when you've been hurt? It, it's especially church hurt. And some of you know what it's like to have church hurt where they do it in Jesus' name, brother, sister, and then they hurt you. But I'm encouraging you to love again. 
I'm encouraging you to have faith in your fellow believer. I didn't, have, I didn't say to have faith in the world. The world will let you down. Do not have faith in religion. Religion is dark. It's dreary. It doesn't have any joy. Religion will mess you up. They'll, they'll kick you out. Religion will. They'll kick you out of the church. And then they'll get mad at you that you left. It's true. You'll get that on the drive home. What do you mean? They've kicked me out. Why are they mad? Because I've left. That's religion. You don't meet their qualifications. They'll kick you out. And then they're mad that you didn't have enough God in you to stay. So I'm not saying have faith in the world, confidence in the world. The world is the world. We're here to be light and ignite hope in this world. I'm not saying you to have faith in religion. Organized religion is always man-made and it will mess you up. Have confidence in your fellow believer. That's why church services like this are so important. That's why planting yourself in the house of the Lord is so important so you can flourish. That's why being around like precious believers that believe in the things of God, that have faith and believe in one another, it's so important. Listen to the Apostle Paul. He's talking to a church at Corinth, and the church at Corinth had gotten a little off track, like many people. You know, it was a church. It was, it was dealing with people, and they had issues. And the church of Corinth, they, they, they started acting crazy. They started mismanaging the gifts of the Spirit, which tells me that the gifts of the Spirit needs to be in every New Testament church. So if he's dealing with them about mismanagement of the gifts, but, which tells me the church needs to have those gifts. The church should never say, oh, those gifts aren't for the day. Miracles aren't for the day. Speaking in unknown tongues is not for the day. Prophecy is not for the day. Signs, wonders, gifts of healing, not for the day. Entrepreneur spirit, none of that's for today. See, that's, that's religion. That's organized religion that will let you down. So he's dealing with the church, and they're, they believe in the supernatural. They're doing all these things, but they've just kind of, you know, they've misappropriated some things. They did things that were out of the line of God. So he deals with them. They were getting drunk at communion. Again, winos. I'm not, this is in the Bible. They were drunk at communion. They're like, oh, we love Jesus. Oh, I love you too, brother. I love everybody. Orderly, you want to get down now? Because, you know, they always turns into a fight. Oh, you know, don't look at me. You, you go to those family reunions. Somebody always wants to fight when they get a little too much liquor. Courage catches when the lips hit the bottle. So anyway... They got, they got this issue. So the apostle Paul is dealing with them. He says, you know, you're not doing right with the, with the spiritual things. You're not doing right with the communion. You're not taking the body of the Lord with discernment. And then they were mismanaging the money. They were, having, they were doing stuff. So in the first chapter of Corinthians, he says, man, you got off track. And he literally kind of, because he's the spiritual authority, he disciplines them. He, he sets the course for correction. And once he disciplines them, they repented. But guess what he says in 2 Corinthians? You would think after 1 Corinthians, you would go, man, these guys have lost it. I don't know if they'll ever do anything for God again. But no, in 2 Corinthians, it's the opposite. He says, I have confidence in all of them. And then he adds up to it. He says in 2 Corinthians 7, 16, I have confidence in all of them in all things. The management of the spirit, the management of the money, the management of the fellow believers of the world in which they live in. He says, I got confidence in them in all things. What would it be like if a church really caught this movement of igniting hope and saw somebody that maybe was a wayward child or maybe somebody that was wrapped up in religion and the believer 
they went to them. They've sinned deeply. They've made mistakes. They've had failures. They've fallen. And they went to him and said, brother, sister, I got confidence in you in all things. You're going to do great things for God. You're going to do great things for this world. You're going to do great things. You're a great man. You're a great woman. How big would Christianity would be if we would stop shooting our wounded or walking over them when they've fallen and we'd go pick them up and ignite hope in them? See, that's the goal. I think for all of us, having confidence in God, having confidence in our fellow believer. But here's why the fellow believer takes issue and we don't do it because we don't have confidence in ourselves. And you need to have confidence in you. God thinks so highly of you that he put his Holy Spirit on the inside of you. Nobody can come to the Lord unless the Holy Spirit draws them. And God has drawn you today by the power of his spirit. And that paraclete, that one who assists and comes aside to help us in all of our ways, he is here today. And he wants you to know you need to have confidence in you. Your dreams, what you've been called to do by God, you're to have confidence in yourself. You're to look in the mirror and not see everything you're not. You're to see everything that you can become. You need to have confidence in who you are as a parent, who you are as a grandparent, who you are as a person in the workplace, who you are in the ministry that God's called you to do. You need to have confidence in yourself. God's put it in you to make the difference. You know, it's not up to me to make the difference always. I have a short sphere of influence. I can only do certain things. You know, I have a lot of things going. I, can, I have taken care of the church, the, the, the needs of the church, the needs of the city center, launching out for Oasis Cares. I can't tell you yet all the things we're getting ready to do and come this first of the year. But launching out all these things. I have a, you know, I have, I have a wife and children to raise. I mean, uh, I, you know what I mean. I have things to do. And I have a short sphere of influence. I have nothing, the sphere of influence that you have. Your workplace, your family, your friends, your neighbors. But you got to have confidence in God. You got to have confidence in your fellow believers. And you have to have confidence in yourself to ignite hope in them. Can we stand together all over the building with our heads bowed and our eyes are closed in the presence of God? We're going to close with a beautiful song that the team has prepared by the wonderful, wonderful power of the Spirit that's evident in this room, both services. But I want to encourage you with this thought. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6 says, We are the household of Christ if we hold fast our confidence. That means we got to have a good confession. We can't run around like Chicken Little saying, The sky is falling, the sky is falling, this city is, this city is. No, no, we got to have a good confession. We're not poster child for the devil. We're children of the Lord. And when hell breaks loose, we need to stand up and say, my God is for me. Who dare be against me? Yeah. Hebrews 10, 35 says, cast not away the confidence, which has great reward. Has your peace been shattered because of an Ahithophel? Have confidence in other people again. Have you been shattered by your own mistakes? Have confidence in yourself. Have you been betrayed? Join the club. All of us have. How many of you in this room would say, Joey, I have a battle. There's an area in my life that I have a struggle. Maybe it's in a marriage. Maybe it's with finances. Maybe it's in your health. Maybe it's with your children. Maybe it's with an addiction. But it's an emotional thing that you're struggling with, a mental issue you're struggling with. You have family issues, but it's a struggle. 
that you've never been able to conquer, whatever it happens to be, but it's a continual battle. If that's you today, I want you to slip a hand up. There's a battle that's facing you, a battle that's facing those of you with your hands up. So for some of you, it's a continual onslaught of hell. For some of you, it's been issues that you've been brought on by yourself. But I'm here to tell you, no matter if it's been brought on by hell or by your own cell number because you brought it on yourself, the battle is not yours. The battle is not man's. The battle is not flesh and blood. The battle is not the city, town, or state you live in. The battle is not a Republican issue or a Democratic issue or a political issue. The battle that you're facing is the Lord's. This is God's fight because you're his child. And when God gets in the fight, it's a good fight because it's a fight you're going to win.